0: Welcome to Living Ultra Rare, a podcast sponsored by the ABL Plus Foundation, raising awareness about rare diseases and the people who live with them. And now, here are your hosts, Paul Bitterman and Barry Funkhauser.
1: Welcome, you're listening to Living Ultra Rare, presented by the ABL Foundation. I'm Barry Funkhauser. And
2: I'm Paul Bitterman, and we're having inspiring conversation with those Living with ultra rare disorders. Today on the show, we welcome Noah.
0: Hi, hi Barry, hi Paul. It's nice hi, to Noah. talk to you
2: both.
1: Paul, why don't you tell us how you know Noah?
2: Well, Noah and I have the same ultra rare disorder. It's called a beta Yes, spell that if you can. Um, and <laughs> I and I actually met Noah at the National Institutes of Health probably now about 12 years ago. So she was still a teenager then. I don't know if she remembers that, but um, we were there both there at the same time. And it's very unusual for uh, ABL patients that we call it ABL, uh, for ABL patients to be in the same place at the same time because there's so few of us.
0: Right. Yes. Um, I know. I remember it vividly Mm. because it was the first time I met someone that had my same condition. So I was very thrilled and excited. And it felt for the first time that I wasn't alone I actually met someone that has it so
1: okay let's take a step back and we want to ask you this first question what makes you Noah ultra rare tell us
0: well I'm ultra rare in many different ways besides health wise but health wise I was born with a beta And that is an ultra rare disease, um, as well as, as I've gotten older, I have other conditions that are are undiagnosed and aren't really with a a ABL, but, um, that's, that's how I'm ultra rare health wise. Personally, I'm a very old soul and due to being born with a rare condition, I've had to mature a bit faster. So I always kind of felt that I it was hard for me to relate to people my own age. Where older adults, I felt I I meshed in better.
1: I see. Okay, so that's all well and good, but you're you're just like everybody else, of course. And you said you're an old soul. So what does that mean? Are you are you wearing bell bottoms and <laughs> eight track tapes?
0: No, no. uh, I'm I'm the old soul in what I like to do. So I like to read a lot of the classics. I watch a lot of like black and white films. Uh, I grew up on them. My parents introduced me to them. My grandmother introduced me to them. So I I listened to a lot of the music that were in my grandmother or my parents' days more than uh, modern music.
1: Okay, so let me ask you then, is it like jazz, Dizzy Gillespie, or is it crooners, I left my heart? What are you two into?
0: <laughs> I I like a, a bunch of different things. I don't have like a set genre that I specifically like. I just like anything that really touches me and moves me. Um, So really, it's just anything. I like to listen to classical music sometimes, sometimes opera. It really just depends on my mood.
1: And can you give us a recommendation as to what – You're you're probably watching TCM classic movies. Yes. Which one has been one of your favorite movies out there that you've seen recently?
0: Uh, Well, my favorite actor from that time period is James Stewart, hands down. I love everything I've seen him in. Um, But the classic that is, it is a Christmas movie, but a classic that was just a part of my household was It's a Wonderful Life. And it brings a lot of good memories of, watching that every Christmas with my grandmother and my parents and anything that James Stewart is in.
2: (laughs) Okay. So what makes you normal? What makes you like everybody else?
0: Well, what makes me like everyone else is that I do have dreams and I do have goals just like everyone. And I want to be able to reach them someday. And I do want to hopefully be in a relationship one day and, you know, just, those sort of parts of life that everyone, you know, dreams and wants.
1: You're saying you're single then? Hello. Uh
0: -uh. Yes, I've been single. I've never been in a relationship.
1: Are you into that online dating thing? Is that what the kids are into these days or how do you meet people nowadays?
0: Well, with my, the issue is, is that with my, uh, all my different chronic conditions, a lot of the time, it kind of keeps me housebound. So I don't really have a, huge a lot of opportunity to be meeting people my own age and also because of past friendships that didn't really go well I have become a bit more introverted and so I find it sort of difficult to put myself out there as part of society I mean I have a few good good friends but I it's sort of I saw this thing one time on the internet saying how do introverts get friends 90% they don't, 20% an extrovert likes them and adopts them. (laughs) Yes. That's how I feel like my friendships has worked. They were all extroverted. They liked me, so they took me in.
1: (laughs) Well, I hate to break it to you, Noah, but as you get older, your friendship circle gets smaller and smaller. I can't speak for Paul, but I'm pretty sure I can.
2: That is certainly true. I mean, I'll tell you, Noah, I'm going to be 58 here in about a month. And I had no relationship at all until um, online dating. And I met uh, an amazing woman uh, named Martha. And we've been together for 10 years now. So um, that's amazing. There is somebody out there for you. I guarantee it.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to patiently wait and just see what happens.
1: So, okay, let's go through your... Diagnostic journey, dun 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 dun. Your diagnostic journey. Now, this explain to the people, Paul, what a diagnostic journey is, please.
2: Well, a diagnostic journey, or or they also call it a diagnostic odyssey, is when you're talking about somebody who has a rare disease, and there are um, roughly, I believe, about seven thousand rare diseases on the planet. And then there are, there's a subgroup of that that are called ultra rare um, because of how few people there are that have it. Our illness, Noah's and mine, uh, there is less than 200 people on earth that have this illness. We don't know exactly how many. So what happens when you, when you're born, or, or in some cases when they're a bit older, some people have been diagnosed later, when you first present with symptoms, They don't think of a rare disease. They think of everything else. And it it takes, you know, dedication and repeated visits to different doctors and and all this stuff until finally somebody goes, hell, hey, maybe it's this. And that's a a diagnostic journey or a diagnostic odyssey. It's because people with these illnesses, it's so hard to get diagnosed properly because the illnesses are so rare. So, Noah, tell us what what you know about your diagnostic journey because I believe you were a baby when you were diagnosed, correct?
0: Yes, yes. I was um, five months old when I was finally diagnosed. So I'm going off a note that mom, you know, put down for me since unfortunately I don't remember everything clearly. But basically I was my parent's eighth try because my mom had, uh, miscarriages. And when I was born, I was a preemie. So I was so small and I was failure to thrive. So I was very skinny. I was withering away. And I kept, you know, uh, as you know, Paul, I was, uh, vomiting and, and just all that. And I was in so much pain and for a lo- the longest time, my parents had to go back and forth, uh, once we got to Children's Hospital um, because they kept saying, oh, it's acid reflux, it's acid reflux. And um, for our blood cells and canthesize, you don't really, the computer doesn't read it. So it, it wasn't until someone looked under the telescope for my blood cell and where they actually saw that. And then finally at five months, they realized what the problem was. And so then after that, eventually, we found a formula that, that, that helped, but um, it was a long journey for my parents uh, besides just me, because this, this was their first child and in my family, there's no one, no one sick. Uh, so it, it was new for everybody to be having a sick person in their family and no one, my parents had no idea. They They were just new and this was a lot for both my parents to, to stumble upon. So uh, it was, it was a uh, quite grueling for my parents, for sure. Uh,
2: I'm sure. And just, just for the audience sake to, to for them to understand when you're talking about genetic illness like this, it takes both parents to have the gene, but even when both parents have the gene, there's only a 25% chance that they would pass on the illness because They both have to pass on the gene. Uh, It doesn't always happen. We have a lot of families that have these illnesses that one child has it and the others don't. And that's just how genetic uh, illnesses work. Um, I was also six months old when I was diagnosed, but back in 1966, you couldn't even buy fat free formula, much less anything else. So I know, I know how hard it is. My mom would tell you very similar stories about. My diagnostic journey, and it took a a young doctor from Boston, Massachusetts, who I think was fresh out of medical school to uh, come down and actually diagnose it. And that failure to thrive that you mentioned that is a common tag that they put on children with these illnesses because they just don't know what they are. They don't know what's wrong, and so they go, "Well, we don't know." Sorry.
0: Right. Exactly. I mean, I was. My I don't know how my, my parents, but I don't know how my mom did it. I mean, she didn't get any sleep because I was in so much pain before diagnosis. All I kept doing was screaming and crying. They just didn't know. And, you know, of course, you know, breast milk contains fat in it. So mm-hmm. she not realizing, even though, you know, normally that's nutrients and that's wonderful for a baby. Mm-hmm. But for people, Paul, with heart condition, that's not that was making everything worse.
2: Yeah. Definitely. So so let me ask you this. What do you know now about your medical situation that you didn't know five or 10 years ago?
0: Well, what I know was besides being absolutely blessed to have the doctors that I had in Children's Hospital and NIH, and if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't have lasted or I wouldn't have been here. But I think now it's more not not about the disease that i know more about it's more of as i've gotten older it's being more aware of symptoms and how things could possibly change for me uh i think it just hit me recently when the eye doctor at nih told me there's retina changes and we're thinking that's obviously due to the abl um so it's more of the it's more of the awareness i think than anything else because with the abl i I know as much as I can about it. Um it's just on top of these other undiagnosed things that aren't that don't coincide with ABL. It feels like it makes everything else complicated. Um so it's more of a awareness of what my body needs and and how I need to, you know, listen to what it needs.
1: We talked about you as a baby and I'm sure you have a really good relationship with your mom still, right?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: And you're super educated, like you're writing, you're a poet, your book's coming out soon, hopefully, but you must have gone to probably regular high school. And tell us about that part of your life growing up.
0: Yes. Growing up, I was in public school from preschool all the way to fourth grade. I had learning comprehension issues. And of course, with the ABL, I had so much... um, medication that i had to take so it was the nurse's job that i had to go and she had to give that to me through my um feeding tube because at the time it was liquid vitamin e and as paul knows it's a big dose of it and so it was a lot to drink so we had always just kept putting it through my feeding tube so in elementary school it was quite difficult uh i think Less for me, but more for everyone else to understand what was going on. And why did I have to go to the nurse's office every time during recess? Why did I have my own food? Why could not I eat like everyone else did? And then, you know, going out to restaurants is was a nightmare because especially when I had to go with other people, I always hated the fact that I felt like we always had to go to places that I had to eat. And it may not have been what they wanted to eat. So over time, as I've got older, it's been more understanding that, you know, I have to do what I have to do. And I shouldn't put too much concern if everyone else is uncomfortable. But growing up in it was definitely difficult because I did feel a lot of time like an outsider looking into the rest of the world. And so I didn't actually go to high school because I was severely bullied near the end of fourth grade. And so my mom took me out and I was homeschooled um, through fifth grade to high school. But because once I hit puberty, my health started to decline and I didn't actually graduate and I didn't go to college. So I've been basically self-educating myself as much as possible. And the great things about modern days, there's so many resources that I can do that at. So I've just been self-educating and I started writing poetry when I was 14 and after that writing and being a poet and a playwright is the career that I that I hope and dream for myself.
1: Who are your favorite poets?
0: Oh, well, William Shakespeare is what started it all for me. I read one of his sonnets because there's actually this private school that allowed homeschoolers to take two classes. So they kind of They kind of experienced high school a little bit, even though we're only there three times out of the week. Literature was one of the classes and biology was the other one. I do not know how well I did in biology. I don't know how it's possible that I got A's. I think I just studied really well because my brain does not lean towards the sciences very well.
1: (laughs) Right, okay. um,
0: For sure. But with the literature, I didn't really know much about because I had reading comprehension issues growing up as a kid, but Shakespeare somehow—I don't know how he did it—that problem went away, and so I really got heavily into Shakespeare. I read all of his plays. I'm reading his sonnets, and so after Shakespeare, just kind of spiraled to Edgar Allan Poe, Emily Dickinson, Arthur Miller, uh, Samuel Beckett, Theodore Dostoyevsky. So you know all all the classics. Um, Charles Dickens, I mean, I could spend hours just talking about all the authors I enjoy yeah. reading.
1: There's that um, old soul again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, good. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Uh, I would just say, no, you know, as far as how you got A's in biology, you know, just like dealing with your doctors, you probably know more about biology than your teachers did.
0: Right. I mean, I think maybe <laughs> that probably gave me a bit of an advantage Sure. Um, but other than that, whatever I did learn at that class, you can't quiz me now because I definitely don't remember.
2: <laughs> That's like me with Spanish. Yeah. So so you're, you're writing poetry. I understand you, you either have had a book published or you're about to, is that correct?
0: It's Yes, it's in the middle of getting it published. It's right now with some people that are working on it or showing it to other people. The amazing thing about becoming now this poet and writer is that you learn so much about the literary world and, and book publishing that I would have never known if I didn't get into this business. Um, and it's a long process to publish a book. And so the, these people that I met with, you know, they gave me the reality not to discourage me from publishing my book, um, but to know that, you know, unless you're, you know, a hugely famous person, you know, like a celebrity, you'll get your book done real quick. But when you're an unknown person and you're just starting out, it's a long process. But it's a process that's been very interesting, and I've had a fun time learning about it. So I'm looking forward to when it does come out. I don't know when that is, but once I do, I'll let you all know. It's a book of poetry, correct? And what's it called? It's called um, Write What Wrong May Be. It's titled that uh, write as in R-I-G-H-T. Because my grandmother, my abuela, used to, every time we would drive off to anywhere or travel, she would always say a prayer, um, Holy Spirit, right, what wrong may be. So I just kind of took part of that, and I used that as the title of my first book. To basically, this poetry book is about how I'm making the thought process of someone else that isn't in our shoes would think is so wrong to live life being limited and illness being in the way, but it's just my journey on how I'm trying to make right of this complicated diagnosis and being a sick individual with health issues in this world and trying to figure out where I place.
1: Please let us know when it comes out. We'll link the heck out of it for sure.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'll definitely let you know. Um, Right now, I'm, I'm in the middle of working on a play, my first play that I'm writing, so it keeps me busy and it keeps my head and, and, and heart straight. I mean, without the writing, I'm not really sure where I would be at.
1: All right. Well, miss introvert poet playwright who goes out wherever she wants to eat at now, let me ask you if you can go back in time and go all the way back and talk to all these medical professionals who are scratching their foreheads throughout your diagnostic journey. Uh, And in order to help other people that are experiencing these rare issues, what would you tell them?
0: I think the main thing I would want to tell them is you have to go out of your comfort zone. You have to step out of the box because, you know, medical physicians, they learn to be doctors. But a lot of the time when you hear uh, if you close your eyes and you hear hooves, if everyone does that, you would think automatically it's a horse. And most of the time it probably is, you know, there's more healthier people, but you can't look at everyone and put them in the same box, especially when you're a patient with an ultra rare disease, you kind of have to step out of your comfort zone and out of your box to know, okay, I don't know everything. And as frustrating as that probably is, let's work with the patient because ultimately the patient is going to know more because they're the one dealing with the symptoms they know their body more than anybody else so to kind of it be more of a collaboration than be sort of the separate i'm the doctor you're the patient and to never be afraid to ask any other doctors that may know about it or or try to get different consultations in you know to really grasp and just go on the journey with the patient i mean even if you don't have all the answers and even if there may not be any cures or things to come up with at least be with that person and willing to go on the journey with them
2: it's interesting you you mentioned about hearing hooves and it could all be horses but maybe not it could be a zebra like us and right and that's actually national organization of rare diseases that is their their symbol is the zebra because we are people of different stripes and, and, but we're just people. And, and so that's, that's what I I agree with you about. Doctors need to be more open-minded about things, especially when they're dealing with somebody with an illness that they can't put a finger on.
0: Right. And, you know, I get that their job as being a doctor is that they're, they're helping people and they want to fix things. And I can imagine that that's frustrating when you don't have the answer and you can't really tell these patients, you know, okay, I have the answer. I have the miracle thing I can give you. And, you know, everything will be fixed. I can imagine that that's probably difficult, but at the same time, not being open enough is not helpful to you as a doctor and and obviously not helpful to the patient. So if you can put your kind of your own personal emotions aside at the, at that moment and think, okay, I don't know everything, but let me just really work with the patient and let's do this together. I think is hugely important thanks for
1: being on Noah
0: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on and yeah,
2: thank you, Noah. We really appreciate it. yeah, I would just say that people with ultra rare diseases like any disease like any rare disease we're we're all just trying to live our lives, and I'm now fifty seven about to be fifty eight but I worked until I was in my 40s, until it became too hard to work. I drove until I was about almost 50. So yeah, you know, we're just trying to be people. We're just trying to live our lives, as Noah would agree, I'm sure. And it it is difficult. It's difficult to have to go to every new doctor you see and tell the whole same story again. It gets old, you you almost want to write a script. Um, You really do, (laughs) yes. Yes, please. Doctors work with your your colleagues and try and find out if you have somebody that has something you can't understand. Find somebody who does because there are doctors out there that that do. And like I said, there are 7,000 rare diseases on the planet. There are a smaller group that are what we call ultra rare. And some of them have treatments. Ours have treatments. Noah alluded to it earlier about um, the high doses of vitamins we take massive doses of vitamins A, E and K because with a beta our bodies don't absorb fat and fat is what um, transports those vitamins throughout the body so that's why we take them. You know it's an unusual illness um, but as uh, as we're finding out as we dive more and more into it, there are people that have it. And there are doctors who know about it. And it's just a matter of putting
1: the two together. Thank you so much for listening. And please consider donating. That's the very best way that you can help out those living ultra rare. And visit our website, ablfoundation.org, and click the donate button. Thank you so much for your support.
2: Click it. Thank you. Click it
0: now. Yes, click it. (laughs) Thank you, Noah. We appreciate you being on. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Living Ultra Rare. This podcast has been made possible by the ABL Plus Foundation, providing scientific data-driven information and guidance in the diagnosis and management of a beta lipoproteinemia and related disorders. Thank you for listening. To learn more and to donate, please visit ablfoundation.org.